0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Romaniacs, the podcast for people who want to have their Black Forest Ghetto and their tart tatan, their Pastastinata and their Tirabasu, and eat it by staying in the European Union. I'm Peter Collins and this week we'll be talking about the leaked government plan to keep low-skilled Europeans out of Britain, pretty much everyone out of Britain after Brexit, <laughs> assuming anyone still wants to come here by then, the EU withdrawal bill and Downing Street's attempts to whip pro-Remain Conservative backbenchers into line, Michel Barnier and David Davis, the love that dare not speak its name. Well, maybe. The shadow that Brexit is casting across the NHS... And, last but not least, what Brexit means for Britain's tech industries, for which we have a special guest. Oliver Smith is senior reporter at The Memo, a daily online newspaper which says it's for people curious about the future. I guess that excludes quite a lot of pro-Brexit people who seem to be more curious about a rose-tinted version of the past. (laughs) But anyway, welcome to the show, Oliver. Now, is it fair to assume that most people in digital and IT-related businesses, the sort of businesses that you write about, are Mm. pro-Remainers, or is that just a stereotype?
1: I think that's totally Fair to say. And actually, um, we, we saw before the referendum there was a, there was a survey. It found that 87% of the London tech community were pro remain. Um, and uh, I believe that, that that figure has
0: stayed just as high since. So you've come up with a solution to all of our problems. We have a second referendum and only tech people can vote. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they'd love that. (laughs) Indeed. Well, we'll be talking more to Oliver later in the show. Uh, Now let's introduce the other members of the panel. First of all, Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. And this podcast's answer to Oscar the Grouch from (laughs) Sesame Street. (laughs) Ian, which politicians have been making you grouchy this week, apart from
2: all of them? Yeah, I mean, which ones have been not making me grouchy would probably be a better question. I mean, look, it's been another really, really short shabby, terrible week of watching MPs behave in a deeply mediocre way at best. So, you know, take your pick.
0: Indeed. And also with us, Ros Taylor, who is editor of the LSE Brexit blog. We'll be talking about one of her latest articles at the moment. Ros, which Sesame Street character do you identify with?
3: Oh, this was a tough one, actually. I couldn't decide. So I asked my husband and he said, Oscar the Grouch. Yeah. Cheers. Because obviously we live in a trash can. I appreciate that. No. Uh, so I had to think again. And uh, I thought, well, you know, probably Kermit because, uh, you know, trying to get a bunch of crazes to actually get the job done. That's not, that's not my job description. That's that's just kind of watching the current state of government in Indeed. the UK.
0: Well, 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 I'm the cookie monster, I think. Um, when I watched Sesame Street as a child, the message I drew from it was eat as many biscuits as you can as quickly as possible. I'm not sure that's what they intended, but it's, it's the message I took. So anyway, we'll do our ra- usual roundup of the week's Brexit news in a moment. But first, back to Roz for a quick word on how to become a regular Romaniac.
3: If you've got fed up of all those videos of cats performing hilarious tricks, you'll be delighted to know that YouTube now has a Romaniacs channel on which you can hear the most recent episodes of the podcast. It's simple, really. You just go to YouTube and search for Romaniacs. That's remain and EAX, and not re and maniacs, which is what I generally search for. <laughs> and please subscribe, too, because the more subscribers we get, the more favours we'll have bestowed upon us by the almighty and omnipotent YouTube algorithm. Apple users, please do subscribe via the iPhone podcast Cast's app or itunes and leave us a nice review and star rating while you're there it all helps us to reach more people and get the word out if you go to our website romaniacs.com you can also find links to follow us on spotify pocket Casts, stitcher overcast and audio boom if that's what tickles your fancy and there are links to our twitter and facebook feeds that's all at romaniacs.com
0: And we're already getting comments from viewers of our new YouTube channel. A user calling himself London Boy commented, fuck Spain, we'll have a war with them. (laughs) Fuck Scotland as well, we'll always rule them. We don't need anyone, we can be self-sufficient, so fuck the EU. Um, Well, thanks very much for adding so much to the quality of the Brexit debate. A more reasoned comment came from Thomas Menezes. He wants us to answer it as well. He says he voted leave because he feels the European Union's undemocratic. He's never been given a vote for who will lead the EU for its manifesto and in the past it's forced member states to keep voting until what Brussels regards as the right answer. So he wants us to answer this. Do we believe the EU is democratic or if we don't how much is democracy worth to us that we'd hand over our own democracy? Tough question. Who wants to go first?
2: I'll have a go on that. I think it's a a good question and it raises some valid points. So um, there's, there's a couple of things here. The first one is it's not anywhere near as undemocratic as its opponents make out, but it's nowhere near sufficiently democratic in order to be properly sort of supported openly in those terms. You have the European Parliament, which is a really good scrutiny body that's made up by elected MEPs. As people, they go out, they vote for these people, they scrutinize stuff, exactly like it works here. You have the Council, which is made up either of ministers or made up of the, prime, of the sort of leaders, prime ministers and presidents of various states. So it's represented by the votes of people in those domestic countries. So again, that functions according to the democratic choices that were made in countries. And then you have the Commission. And the commission is an extraordinary beast, really, because it's a sort of government plus civil service wrapped up into one. Now, it proposes legislation and it is not entirely clear always where they get the ideas for the proposal. I mean, really, they go around different sort of countries. They listen, what are your concerns, like, let's say, around vaping or something like that. And maybe we could figure that out in in sort of legislation. They put it forward. Now, the EU works very well as a scrutiny system for the stuff that they put forward. Very, very well indeed. Those layers of scrutiny with a democratic underpinning, I think, is very effective. In terms of proposing a decision, I understand why there's concern there, but I would counter it in, in this way, which is that basically... For mutual advancement, this is about countries pooling a certain degree of resources. They do it in order to, say, can trade more so that they can protect themselves more, let's say, by, you know, having an information system across countries that tells you about terrorist threats. And so you do lose a little bit of sort of control in order for more cooperation across those states. But that is an adult choice that you make and that you have to talk about in those terms. So is it perfect? No. But actually, is it justifiable in terms of the other benefits that you might get from it, and is it scrutinised to a sufficient degree? I would argue, uh, probably yes. Okay, on to
0: ross
3: Yeah, I mean, I could be facetious and say it's a hell of a lot more democratic than the House of Lords, but I won't. That's the easy <clears throat> answer. I'm not going to make. It is a very, very good question. I think the EU has steadily tried to become more democratic as, as time has gone up on it. It's introduced more systems for. Uh, to, to ensure that people have more say. And over the last 40 years since, since we joined, it has become a more democratic organisation. This is not clear to people because when we vote in European elections for MEPs, we don't actually vote on European issues. Um, people vote... Uh, and they deliver a verdict on the uh, state of the government at the time. Now, to a certain extent, that is also true for local government, but it is especially true for European-level government. So because we don't treat it as though it's a democracy mm-hmm. and it can respond to our desires and what we want, therefore it's not going to be one, basically, mm-hmm. because both it works both ways. And it has not been a successful system. I think you can make lots of arguments uh, which touch on issues around nationalism about whether you can have a truly supranational body that is representative whether people don't want to be governed at that kind of uh, level on the level of hundreds of millions of people although look at america that seems to work okay but the EU is very is very different whether people like to know that they have a national government which to which uh, which, which is accountable to their desires and their needs but that's a why wi- that's a wider issue when you get it down to the Nitty gritty, and say how could it be improved? There are actually some things you could do to improve the way of MPs MEPs are elected. Um, for, there's been some very interesting ideas, which are interesting to me because I'm a kind of sad EU nerd, obviously. But <laughs> the idea, the idea, for example, that uh, you would have pan EU parties, party lists, so. That uh, although your local can- your candidate would be local, they would be uh, representing an EU-wide party, and of course there are already groupings in the European Parliament, which our domestic parties join. But these would be much wider, and it would give it would give a pan-European link, and it would mean that. Everyone in Europe knew what the major parties in the European Parliament party groupings stood for, and that would give a more direct link. So I really like that idea. But as I say, I'm an EU nerd.
0: Thank you. How about you, Oliver, our guest? Um, do you feel the EU is d- democratic or not? I feel it
1: is. I feel one of the weaknesses has been in education. I think when I was at university, I remember hearing about these big projects trying to educate people on how the EU works. We talked a bit about, you know, the structures and the confusion there. I think there is confusion, and I. Think I think the EU has done not a great job at explaining itself to the 500 million people who are out there. Um, so I think it's I think that education question is kind of key. And I think they kind of fell short on that.
0: Yeah, I agree. My point would be that um, in Britain, we concentrate an awful lot of power in the hands of a prime minister who we don't uh, directly elect, just like the European Commission. What happens is we vote for MPs and they we know who we have an idea of who is going to be the, the leader. But that's also true. Uh, at European Commission level, the Commission the new Commission president is chosen officially chosen by the Parliament, and I believe the practice is now that they look at who has got the support of the biggest group of parties within the european parliament it 's a very similar system of indirect uh, election of course it 's at one remove, but then if we want to do things, we want to cooperate with other countries. I would rather we cooperated with other democratic countries whose government have be, has be, have been voted in by the people of those countries and i 'm prepared to share a bit of sovereignty with the people of Portugal and Spain and Italy and so on in order to achieve things. Of course, the EU isn't perfect, it isn't totally democratic neither is the British Parliament Uh, Thomas in his question also anticipated some of these points we're going to make and said well if you want to reform it how are you going to reform it? My answer to that is that I don't think British governments successive British governments over the years have tried anything like hard enough to build alliances within the EU among other people in EU politics who do also want to reform the EU, make it more efficient make its policies better, make it more democratic. We, we We should have been trying Uh, years ago and it would be nice if somehow we could get back to being in the EU and trying again to reform it. You can only do it by building alliances when you've only got one vote yourself. So, Thomas, hope that's told you something about our opinions. It might not have changed your opinions, but at least if we understand each other's opinions better, that's some sort of progress. Let's go on to our first news item now. On Tuesday night, the government's plans to curb the migration of low-skilled Europeans and pretty much all Europeans to Britain after Brexit were leaked to the newspapers, to The Guardian uh, first. The document, apparently compiled in the last few weeks, stamped with official sensitive across every page in great big letters to make us read (laughs) it, of course, says that (laughs) lower-skilled... EU migrants will only be able to stay for up to two years. Those in high-skilled occupations will get three to five years, but then probably they will be out. Uh, The right for Europeans to settle in Britain for the long term will essentially be phased out and it'll also become a lot harder to bring in family members. There may be a hard numerical cap on the number of low-skilled migrants or a minimum salary requirement or some other way of limiting the numbers. So, Ian and Roz, first. Um, What do you think's going on here? Is this a real leak or is it the government's slipping out a little bit of red meat for the pro-Brexiteers ahead of the party conference?
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, if they're going to do that, I don't think they're essentially the Guardian. into the, mail or the oh, express or was well, my conspiracy theory
0: just for the fun of it is that you know they're, they're sitting there thinking right we want to get uh, all of the uh, hardline Brexiteers on our side so let's slip this out to the Guardian and the Guardian will get outraged about this because it's a liberal paper and the, outra- the, uh, the, the fact that we are causing outrage for the Guardian will make us popular Ah, That's my favorite. Yeah.
3: <laughs> People don't think that don't think that way. I think it's a real link. I mean, I think uh, it's it, what it shows is the tension I think inside government because there's some weird annotations. I don't know if you got down in thisy grishy, but there's a bit, there's a bit where um, it, the document refers to the uh, fact that EU nationals currently do, uh, have to provide a passport number to do something or other, but it doesn't have to be a current passport number. And somebody in brackets put after that, "Do we have to put this bit in?" In A slightly <laughs> petulant way, and I kind of that almost sounded like. Am Remember Rudd to me, the Home Secretary, I think, oh, for goodness sake, do we have to make this point? Just, you know, let's... And I think this... I think it was probably leaked by the more pragmatic people in the Cabinet or their lackeys. I think it was a sign of the debate going on. For me, That's. um, I think it still shows the positive thing is it still shows there's a lot up for grabs. A negative thing shows that uh, it shows is that the hardline Brexiteers look like they might get quite a lot of what they want.
0: So, well, let's take it from the sort of the the pro-Brexit point of view. Maybe we should accept a period of difficulty in recruiting in order to ensure that British people get trained up employers do more training they try harder to recruit British people and that maybe wages go up and that's good for the British economy. Uh, Isn't that a good thing?
2: Well, there's no sign that wages would go up. I mean, there's a section, actually, that in the, in the paper that talks about the economic effect of EU migration, and it basically just says, oh, it's been really good for the economy, um, but, you know, probably different in different sectors, and that's about it. And it. It literally can't even find anything to say that it would be harmful. We hear this thing about the hammering down of the wages. We don't really see it in studies as a couple, but it's incredibly minor, but very, very modest reductions in lower wages, which we're not even sure really take place. So there won't be some great increase in wages in any way, in a hard Brexit, anything that you did get back in that way will be absolutely battered by all the other things you've done by your economy by leaving the single market and the customs union. This paper, I mean, what's astonishing about it is you're is almost, almost looking at it in terms of the Brexit terms. Because in terms of Brexit terms, it basically means, well, there's no real transition at all you know of any sort of close relationship after march 2019 i mean it's saying there they have this two-year period i say well we'll maintain kind of freedom of movement but we'll end the free movement directive and we'll end family uh, uh, reunion now that just means you can't be in the single market the customs union that's absolutely written out right there you can't have a close relationship with it so we are now back in the land of the cliff edge in March 2019, which is exactly, by the way, the way that David Davis was speaking in the Commons yesterday when he was discussing this. He kept on sort of alluding to the idea that we could finish the deal by March 2019. He kept on accusing Labour absurdly enough of betrayal for suggesting it wanted to stay in the single market in the customs Union during that period. So the first thing to note from it is really what it means for Brexit. And what it means for Brexit is very hard Brexit, cliff edge 2019 is now firmly back on the table and undeniably so.
0: I, I thought it was interesting, Diane Abbott's very muted reaction, initial oh, reaction God, to yeah. say, well, you know, it's not an official party, let's just wait, and, not official line mm. yet, let's just wait and see. I mean, can you see things... You know, if we suddenly have to have an election now and uh, Labour wins it, would things really be that different under a Labour government? Would, would, would they just tear this thing up or would they essentially think we've got to go along with this anti-migration? Sentiment? I
2: absolutely believe that if we had a Labour government, they would do things differently. What I don't believe is that as an opposition, they will say things differently. And their response has been completely petrified this morning and last night over this, as it is generally speaking about immigration. They're in such an absolute crisis over it, really. However, when you really look at the stuff that sort of Keir Starmer says or a few others say, they're clearly sort of thinking of, you know, when they say managed migration, it seems to me what they really mean is, you know, on condition of a job offer or something, which is the kind of realistic offer you could make to the Europeans. Say, look, not freedom of movement, but as long as they've got a job offer, they can come over, which isn't really all that different from, from, anyway, the law in the EU. And that would allow a very close relationship. What we're proposing here which is to take European citizens and just shove them into the standard immigration machine, we will get very, very short shift from the Europeans, And for very good reason, which is that we are not acting like this is a special new relationship in terms of the rhetoric that we've used with them. We're acting like, no, we couldn't give a damn about you. We, act, you know, we will treat you absolutely the same as everyone else from every other part of the world. There's no special relationship whatsoever. And therefore, if that's the position that we're going to put forward, then we're going to have to face the consequences of it, which will be very, very severe indeed. They just won't be as severe for us as they will for the European citizens who are forced to undergo the routine humiliation and bureaucratic horror that the system really entails.
3: I mean, I think no low low skilled uh, EU migrants will simply not bother coming anymore because even if they found a job in a se- sector which needed their skills, the bureaucracy involved would be just too much of a pain. And uh, this is one of the unsaid things about the idea of quotas for particular sectors. Take nurses, you know, it's a skilled sector, but it's not a high earning sector. So, you have to earn a reasonable amount of money in order to pay for all the admin to go through these procedures. And... It will simply not be affordable for people who are not earning very much to come in and do jobs like that. So we can say, oh, you know, we can we can do without the strawberry pickers, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we can bring in quotas for nurses. But the nurses won't bother to come if it's too difficult.
0: And Oliver, mm. presumably there's going to be bureaucracy for high skilled people, all your, all your people in the tech industries. They'll be told to, to get out pretty much after three to five years and they'll have to fill in all these forms as well, will not
1: they? Yeah, the, the immigration policy is one of the real issues for tech. People are terrified about what's going to happen because we've seen what's happened with the rest of the world. We have entrepreneurial visas and and the systems just don't seem to work very well. Um, and as as a country, we're not producing the number of skilled computer engineers, computer science scientists. To, uh, to supply the workforce that we need. We do need this flow of people who are coming in, who are filling those jobs, because we're not making them ourselves. So unless we um, either have a very liberal, open immigration policy, which it doesn't sound like that's what this is, there are going to be people who get caught by these policies. And unless our universities start ramping up Um, the courses to start churning out more computer engineers and computer sciences, we're going to have a shortfall. I mean, why would anyone fucking come,
2: given that this is how we're going to treat them? Like, we talk about the low-skilled. I mean, on low-skilled, you know, there may still at least be some kind of financial imperative for, say, a seasonal fruit picker or something to go do it. When they're talking about the highly skilled, they're talking about, well, we're going to try and limit these positions from from three to five years. Now, their position for permanent residency starts at five years. So while they say there may be some route into permanent residency here, in actual fact, it seems as if the entire system will be structured to prevent immigrants from turning into Brits. That is a kind of country which is so profoundly closed, so profoundly unwelcoming to immigrants that only someone with a very, very low sense of self-esteem would ever wish to live in it. And that, typically is not a highly skilled, high-earning workforce. Not only that, but as soon as you enter the country, they then want to put you on some kind of biometric database, a separate registration system from the rest of the population, which to me seems like an absolute invitation for the very, very worst motivations of government and the very worst, most pernicious kinds of future prejudice that could be enacted by a government. So the question would be, why would they come? Why would anyone want to come to a country which is so unwelcoming that this is the stuff it proposes? And I would suggest that they're not going to want to come, and we will very quickly suffer the economic and the social and the cultural effects of that decision.
0: It's all a matter of beware of what you wish for, isn't it? So, let's move on now to our second news story. Uh, last week, the third round of talks on a Brexit settlement were held in Brussels between negotiators from Britain and the EU. Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, said afterwards that little progress had been made on the three big issues, namely the Brexit bill, the Britain would have to pay, the rights of EU citizens in Britain and uh, Brits in Europe, and the Irish border. Barnier accused the British side of wallowing in nostalgia instead of negotiating seriously. David Davis, Britain's Brexit secretary, said Barnier's comments had made him look silly. Liam Fox, Britain's trade secretary, described Barnier's approach as blackmail. Barnier shot back by saying that it's not blackmail, but it is part of his job to educate the UK about the price it has to pay for leaving the club. Davis hit back again by claiming it was, in fact, the EU side that was frightened of discussing the future seriously. So, Ian and Roz first um, did the talks go down as badly as the headlines suggested? You know, are we close to a breakdown?
3: I was really annoyed about the coverage of this because it was a it was to be pedantic a bad translation educate in French does not necessarily mean educate in English it's not equivalent and when he was talking about educate it actually meant he wanted to inform it, you know it wasn't you know schooling in the way people on Twitter talk about oh X has been schooled in this Ugh. he wants Britons to know what brexit means for them and that seems reasonable to me but of course because they had a lazy translator you know that day and, and, and papers all picked up on that and BBC to be honest did not help so there was that going on but in terms of uh, did the talks go as badly as headlines suggested I think they're probably going pretty badly I think there's just we, we are getting down to the point where there is this huge imbalance where we don't have nearly as much to offer as we have pretended we do and if we walk out we are just cutting off our nose to spite our face and while the EU will be sad about that it will not be the absolute disaster that it will be for us and they know that.
2: But the most incredible thing to me is that they're arguing over actually one of the few bits of leverage that we have, which is money. We have money. We can offer money, you know, in exchange for getting out the securing other things. And somehow, even in this area, which is one of our strengths, we're managing to somehow cock it up. So it, it is an absolutely extraordinary impulse for them to have reached. Look at the stuff that was put out by uh, CER um, this week. Was really, you know, completely bog-standard, pragmatic solutions to the thing, and basically going out there and going, okay, fine, look, we need to get on to the second phase of negotiations we want to be able to use some of our leverage in terms of payments, uh, divorce payments for that. So what will we do? And a good solution would be to wrap it up with some kind of transitional arrangement. You say, look, we'll be three years in transition. Um, we're going to pay you 10 billion a year and we'll do that until the end of transition. That way, because all, remember, all you've got to do is show evidence of progress on the divorce bill. You don't need to finalise it. You don't need to absolutely sign off on it. Just evidence of progress. That way, we could at least move out of it, still have some leverage over the pensions issue and the assets and liabilities issue, and take that into the second round while preventing ourselves from going over the cliff edge. Now, this is so, it's so plainly obviously reasonable and such an, a, a clear moderate path out of it and yet it is of course and this should surprise no one considered you know radical nonsense by the governing by, by David Davis so it's not surprising not getting anywhere because he clearly doesn't show any of the intellect or the vision which would get us anywhere close to it
0: uh, just to throw in another conspiracy theory just for the fun of it really there they are sort of shouting each other by press conferences, Barnier and Davis, and yet Davis did say that he's known Barnier for 20 years Mm. and does like him. Is it possible that behind the closed doors they're saying, look, we have to play up to our respective galleries and make the differences seem bigger than they are in public because we've got our own politics to deal with, but behind Closed doors that are actually edging closer. Is that too much to hope
2: for? It's not impossible, is it? I mean, I think that's this is mostly the British spin is the fact that they get on quite well behind closed doors. I don't, you don't hear much of that coming from Brussels, but it's but you know, loads of negotiations look publicly unsalvageable just before a solution emerges. So it, that is always possible. We're not completely doomed just yet. But I have to say, I think you need to be quite optimistic and quite imaginative to think that things are going particularly well behind closed doors. There's very little reason for us to conclude that.
3: Yeah, it's possible that after the Conservative Party conference, uh, Theresa May will will offer some money because she has to get through that first. It's possible that will happen. Yeah, I can see that. I think if there's a conspiracy theory to be to be embraced, it's probably that. <laughs>
2: So there was, I mean, there was this moment that Verhofstadt came out and just sort of said, "Well, actually, we're going to get this, you know, this important the, intervention the guy from by the, the European PM. Parliament." Yep. A, a bigger pardon, yes, we're quite right. Yeah, um, he said, Well "Look, we're going to get this big intervention by the British Prime Minister," and I'll talk a little bit further about that later on. It's not really clear what the hell that is. I mean, if it's sort of her taking a more moderate position, I don't know why she would have told him about it because he'd leak it. And if it's her taking a more hardline position. It doesn't really make it, the timing doesn't really make any sense in terms of the Tory party. I I don't, we sort of, this came out and I was sat in my office in Parliament and we were just sort of batting it around thinking like, what on earth could this possibly be given that she's told him and she's doing it before the Tory party conference and basically no one really had any idea. So by the end of it, we're like, you know, maybe she's going to call another election. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, that deserves a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> anyway, let's get on to our third and final news item now. On Thursday, after we recorded this podcast, the House of Commons was due to have the second reading of what was originally going to be called the Great Repeal Bill. Then it was just the Repeal Bill. And now it's the EU Withdrawal Bill. It's like, you know, the Sellafield Nuclear Power. <laughs> thing used to be called Windscale and they changed the name. Hotmail lost popularity, so they called it, called it Windows Mail. You know, that sort of stuff. Anyway, the second reading's is n- when... MPs normally get their first chance to have a proper debate of a a bill in detail and amid reports that some pro-remain Tory MPs could join with the opposition and try to force through amendments. Theresa May set loose her ferocious attack dog, Deputy Prime Minister <laughs> Damien Green, who's about as sp- ferocious as <laughs> Scooby-Dip, actually. Uh, but he was warning the rebels that if they support any opposition amendments, they'll be labelled as Jeremy Corbyn supporters. Ooh! So, first of all, um, this sort of approach didn't go down very well with the pro-Remain MPs, did it, Ian? <laughs>
2: Well, no, but I mean, I, don't, you know, I haven't seen much evidence, to, to be honest, of, of any kind of Tory resistance to this sort of stuff. I mean, yesterday I went through all, you know, two or three interminable hours of David Davis talking in the Commons. And I didn't see any criticism from the Tory benches at all, apart from Ken Clark. Um, Everybody else was, per- I mean, even Anna Soubry was attacking Labour rather than him. And there was quite a few of them repeating those lines. I mean, they get given the lines to take. Labour's portrayed the word of the people, blah, blah, blah. They say it. They leave the chamber. That's their job done. I actually didn't. You know, I mean, I thought the Labour comments were marginally improved, but not so improved that you would actually get to the point we had any faith in the party to scrutinise what was going on. So I, I haven't seen a big kickback against him saying this. Of course the government were going to say, do this and you let letting Jeremy Corbyn by the back door, because that's one of the only arguments they've got left, really. But it should go without saying that it is entirely false and that this bill remains the most unprecedented executive power grab and that no one who had true, you know, truly was committed to their principles and to their conscience, who had been out there arguing for parliamentary sovereignty during the referendum, could possibly come up there and say that this bill was in any way tolerable. It is the precise opposite of everything that they argued for during that period.
0: Well, here's an argument to make conservative backbenchers think twice. Imagine all of those Henry VIII powers in the hands of Jeremy Corbyn.
2: Yeah, well, exactly. No, that's exactly so well put. Is, there's a Raphael Bear piece in The Guardian today, which is, which is this. It's like, when you look at a weapon, when you invent a weapon, think about it in the hands of your enemy. When you give yourself a power, think about it in the hands of those who you would not wish to have it. And Tory MP should damn well look at this thing and think, well, hang on a minute, there's a really good chance you guys are going to be out and there's going to be your worst nightmare. <laughs> this sort of shambolic communist is going to be in, in charge. And you've just basically given ministers the power to do whatever they like, without consequence. Now, we can say that there's sunset clauses on this bill of two years after Brexit, but the thing is, it doesn't actually say when the Brexit date actually is. So you can basically put that date for any point and allow these powers to just keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. It is, simply put, the biggest executive power grab we've seen in this country since the Second World War. And the signs to me are right now that the Tories are just going to wave it through.
3: Yeah, the problem with these Henry VIII powers is that the amount of legislation that can be pushed through without parliamentary scrutiny is so huge. And there is no way that uh, Parliament, let alone journalists, can keep track of it. Basically, it, it, you, can, you can just you can just keep on pushing through. It, the amount of scope they have is enormous. In fact, I think there, would, there will be so much stuff that the problems will emerge retrospectively and people will say, how could we possibly mm. have let this go through? Oh, we were too busy looking at this other stuff. It's more than a Parliament can deal with. And that's, that's the big problem.
2: That's what there, there were solutions to this. You know, at the beginning, it was sort of said, well, look, we're going to create these committees. We, you know, people were suggesting this. We can create committees of MPs, maybe you bring in NGOs, you bring in business leaders, you give them advanced sight of the main sort of statutory instruments so that you could at least separate it out from the more chaffy bits. You could actually have the, the proper meaty aspect of it would get an extra element of scrutiny. All of that would have shown a considerable more degree of sort of commitment to transparency and to scrutiny than what the government is prepared to do. And actually, you're right, the, the, the reversal of that is just you shove all of these powers, not even really to ministers, but ultimately it'll be to civil servants. It's not even really giving the power to Downing Street. It actually weirdly gives it to Whitehall to just start doing all this stuff and they're going to start making lots of mistakes. And what we're going to end up with in March 2019 is an astonishingly messy statute book that doesn't do some of the things that it claims to do and overdoes some of the things that it shouldn't be doing and has basic things like the wrong words in the wrong places. It means we will just have an absolute legislative mess in the wake of this. At the same time, as you know, we've cut ourselves off from our largest market and undergoing all the chaos and uncertainty that that in itself entails.
3: Yeah, it's a huge amount of work for lawyers. And the more work for lawyers in this instance, the, the, the worse, because when people don't don't know what the law is, that's when your democracy is starting to break down, when, they're, when you're not sure of the state of the law. And that's why this is so dangerous. Law is just proliferating these things out of control without people being able to know about them.
0: Thanks, Ross. Well, that's the news successfully rounded up and sent to the sheep dip, all without the aid of specially trained dogs. Now on to our first big discussion of the week on how Brexit will affect the National Health Service, a subject given obviously more urgency by this leaked immigration policy paper. Um, Roz, you've got a new article on the NHS and Brexit uh, this week on your LSE Brexit blog. Uh, tell us about it.
3: Yeah, this is by an LSE health economist. Um, His name is Joanne Costa Font. Uh, He's looked at the effect Brexit will have on the NHS in the round. Now, we know it's very likely to cause staff shortages, and he's predicted it will drive up wages, not just for doctors, but low paid staff too. Now, I know we were disagreeing about this a bit about what the effect on wages will be. But the effect on wages in the public sector, it's going to be quite different from the effect in the private sector. And this is a big deal because the NHS workforce is huge. There are 1.5 million people who work for the NHS. So even when you give them a tiny pay rise, the wage bill just becomes huge. And that's one of the reasons why... They're so keen, for example, to keep the uh, public sector pay cap down. So because of that, um, he says we've basically got a choice. Either we've got to invest heavily in training up new, better paid, hopefully more productive British staff. Remember, Britain is a very unproductive uh, country, and that includes the NHS. They will take a while to qualify, especially doctors, or we carry on recruiting lots of staff from abroad. And he says Brexit is actually a chance to rethink the kind of NHS that we want, um, because... This is in effect a crisis um, for the organisation. But the kind of NHS we tend to want is generally free at the point of use. And if you're going to pay for that through taxation, that's going to be very, very expensive.
0: And my big worry about this um, is that the NHS's pay bill, especially in, in the light of this uh, immigration Policy paper. If if immigration policy is as tight after Brexit as it suggests, we'll have a situation in which the NHS's pay bill will go up hugely, but actually the 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 wages of nurses or people who carry the bedpans or whatever will not go up. What will happen is that they'll be having to turn to agency staff. Um, for, you know, the the, the agencies will soak up a huge margin as they do now. That will all go on the cost of the NHS without really improving healthcare at all. If anybody can get um, nurses or um, cleaners or whoever caterers in from France or Germany or Italy or whatever, and through all this new paperwork, it'll be the agencies. They will charge handsomely for that. They will not probably want to pass on that money to the people doing the work. So I can see a very unpleasant uh, situation where the cost of the NHS goes up and all, or in practice the quality of care goes down uh, enormously because the, the, there isn't the budget to cover the, the higher yeah. pay bill and yet we don't see particularly any any recovery in wages.
3: That is effectively what has already happened in the social care sector something which is massively underreported and is an absolute scandal. The way that the burden of paying for austerity has overwhelmingly fallen on local authorities and it is social care that has been cut and has suffered and it is the people who um, receive social care who don't have very loud voices who suffer as a result and you're right that could very well, that same pattern that we see with agency staff could well spread further into the NHS. I mean, obviously, the NHS already uses agency staff, but more so. Um, Yeah, I think that's a a huge risk um, for, for the government at the moment.
0: And yes, we've got, you know, we've we've had this leak in the the past couple of days of, you know, sort of plans for a very restrictive immigration policy, and yet we've also had a leak um, of the government's planning, uh, NHS England in particular, planning to recruit a further 5,000 GPs to keep its promises, to make sure there are enough GPs, given that a lot of uh, GPs are uh, close to retirement uh, they're having to trawl uh, particularly the European economic area to find them so you've got this you know that the, what we're, the, the government's talking about shutting the doors meanwhile it's spe- presumably spending a lot of money again probably using agents recruiting agents and so on to try and bring in the, the doctors and so on because we, we certainly won't, won't have them uh, trained up in, in time.
3: Yeah, the other thing uh, John Costafont mentions is the European Working Time Directive, which is the first time I've actually seen this brought up around Brexit. But it's a very interesting point. Now you may remember years ago the European Working Time Directive. There was this huge kerfuffle because uh, it was realised that the European Working Time Directive would stop doctors working excessively long hours, and there was a huge upheaval, uh, uproar about this. And uh, but eventually it was realised that actually it wasn't a great idea to have doctors working huge amount of hours, and we we. we Dealt with that. There are still professions that do, for example, if you're in the emergency services, you, you you do, but not doctors. But leaving the EU means that we can we can actually opt out of this um, and not obey it anymore. What uh, he's saying is that that means the NHS will become an even less attractive place to work because they'll be able to basically force you to work as many hours as they like, and that means that fewer, again, people will want to come from abroad to work in Britain as doctors.
0: Doctors are rather like. Uh, The tech people that Oliver was talking about earlier—they've got choices. If you're qualified as a GP, you're—you know, um, know, particularly there must be a fair number of doctors who could go and work in in one of the neighbouring countries. Uh, If you're already an EU citizen or EU-born and you're working here as a GP, you've certainly got options to go go back. Um, The idea that you know we can we can sort of um, set a very restrictive policy and still still have medical treatment when it takes how many seven ten years to, to get to get a doctor trained up. It it just seems like a disaster in the making, doesn't it?
2: Do you know what's going on with drug prices and things like that? I suppose with the, the sort of fall of value of the pound. I mean, as I, I, I thought that lots of the sort of generic drugs that we got were from overseas and the same with the medical equipment. I don't know. I'd sort of heard worrying signs about that at the start of Brexit and haven't really heard much about it since. I don't really know if, we've, if you've gone anywhere with that.
3: Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure either. Um, I, it is clear that leaving the single market means that companies trying to get a new drug licensed will in Britain will have to do it separately from course, via the no. European Medicines Agency. So that will be more bureaucracy, more paperwork. It will very likely take longer.
0: And there is evidence that, um, you know, uh, if you're not one of the biggest markets for health, obviously uh, America and Europe uh and China and Japan are the big markets for, for for buying drugs. If you're a drug company you've got to get through all this very, very very complicated uh, licensing progress process. You're going to c- target the big markets first. So a new drug comes out and uh, everyone in U- Europe who suffers from this ailment will have it and we'll be in the queue waiting to, for the drug company to put
2: in the application mm. for the license. Well we didn't even know how that bit's going to work. I mean you, you rightly mentioned the European Medicines Agency. I mean let's say that it is March 2019 we put out of the EU suddenly we don't come under that We don't really have a body that's able to take on all of that work. You have the same... It's exactly the same, by the way, for veterinary medicine. So, you know, they there's literally no one to authorise the drug there's nowhere for that stuff to go you have to train people up you have to hire them you have to come up with systems for how that's going to operate you have to see them recognised in other states as well all of that takes an awful lot of time now there's no ideas really floating around for what we're going to do in the meantime if we were to pull out in March 2019 the closest we got was a bunch of Tory MPs who came out and said that they thought the courts should do it and of course you'd know, pharmaceutical trials in a courtroom doesn't seem like a very good idea to anyone apart from lunatic Tory MPs so really we have no ideas there at the moment it seems like we are and have at least a few years of just a black hole in terms of regulating drugs and getting them onto the market.
0: Well, since we're talking about technology-related matters, let's move on to have our detailed chat with our special guest, Oliver Smith of The Memo. Let's start, Oliver. Just tell us a bit more about The Memo. Who's it for? What does it cover?
1: So The Memo is an online magazine, and we write about business, technology, lifestyle. We try and write in a very human way, so you won't find any buzzwords. Um, We want it to be your, your daily dose of tech, so you can get up to speed with what's going on, but without having to understand exactly all the intricate
0: details. And you've been writing uh, the past few days uh, on the memo about these reports that the government's preparing to pay up to a billion pounds a year to stay in Horizon 2020, which is the EU's big science research programme. I mean, how important is it? How how significant is it if the government says, we will sign a cheque for a billion pounds and keep in in this?
1: This is really important when it comes to academia and research, because Horizon 2020, it's not really about the money, but it's about the network to join up um, universities across Europe Working towards joint research projects, so it's really about that network opportunity. So, in fact, the money—if we do pay a billion pounds to stay in—we'll probably just get about the same amount of money back. But it's the it's the network that's really priceless, and that's what they're really trying to hold on to here.
0: Yeah, and you've got other things like the European Investment Fund. Um, that's hasn't that backed tech startups in Britain? You know, that it, it, it's something that um, we could do with continuing to have access to so the european investment fund is
1: all about the money this is all about the money <laughs> about a third of um venture capital in the uk comes from europe it's eif money um and this is crucial all of the tech startups the uk ones that you know and love whether it's zoopla whether it's love film
0: these have all been supported at some point by european money it's, i mean it's amazing that we've not heard this before really you know but apart from regular readers of the memo this is kind of important that you know if we want to have those kind of companies the, uh, a European fund to which we belong at the moment is the big thing that's backing them.
1: Yeah, and it's because it's a little bit removed. It's because when the venture capital funds go out there and say we're raising money to put into new exciting startups, um, they'll go to Europe and Europe will put in some money. So when the fund makes the investment in whatever the next big thing is, they don't mention the fact that the EU is actually responsible for some of the money because they, you know, they get all the the praise from it. Um, but if this money suddenly disappears overnight, that's a third of the money over the last five years that's gone into UK startups that could. Disappear and what we're hearing is that the tap has been turned off because there's even though we're still part of Europe, um, these funds are saying we're applying for money, but we're not hearing much back from Europe at the moment. Um, and when journalists like myself ask the EU what what's going on with this, they say we need to do more due diligence, which mm. sounds like code word for the taps off, but we we can't quite say
0: that yet. Yeah, mm. and, and the, uh, in particular fintech. I mean, London is a big centre for fintech. Um, you know, you've got um, you know the, all those of startups around kind of shoreditch area Uh, but the trouble is that you know they need to feed to some extent apart from getting funding from the eif and so on to on on the presence of the big financial institutions uh, of which which dominate the city of london and yet they're all having to you know take a step out of the door set up in frankfurt or dublin or or paris or whatever presumably there's a risk that the, the the fintech scene the whole sort of you know, sort of the the ecosystem, as they love to call it, starts to migrate too. Mm. I mean, the
1: reason why London is a is a fintech hub is because of the banks. It's because after two thousand and seven, all the bankers thought, "Oh, this sector looks a bit shaky. Why don't we, you know, step back for a few years? We've got loads of money, and what should we do? We'll start some businesses." And that's where this fintech wave we're in at the moment. That's where it came from. So, if the big banks leave, that's that's capital and that's talent leaving. Um, you know, the UK is home to these fantastic challenger banks, names like Monzo, you might have heard of, or Tandem or Starling Bank. Fantastic new banks that are eyeing up Europe. They want to take on the world. Um, but they're relying on the fact that we're supposed to be part of Europe so they can jump across, use passporting, which is lets you jump across into Europe and start being a big bank. Um, n- now that we're we're going, that, that causes a lot of uncertainty, especially in fintech. Well, indeed, they,
0: they, if these as these things become big and important uh, if they are based in Britain they'll pay their taxes in Britain even though they are operating on a pan-European basis you know why are we trying to frustrate all of this Mm. I can't understand it
1: I mean, there's 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 not many other places in Europe that are as strong in fintech as we are. We are the clear leader. Places like Paris, Berlin, they're they're trying to sort of they're trying to say that they are. But the thing about it, uh, a tech hub is you can't build it, you can't copy it. It's it's the culmination of hundreds of decisions, the financial crisis, the financial institutions. It's a beautiful sort of creature that's grown from a tiny seed.
0: All these decisions. Um, And that's
1: what we're risking at the moment. That's what we're putting at risk.
0: And it's not just the the people working in the fintech companies. Um, UCL, down the road here, one of the so-called Fab Four top research universities, along with Oxford and Cambridge and Imperial, has said it's all of its... um, All of its EU um, staff are being poached, headhunted by European institutions saying, why don't you come over to Europe? You're not not welcome in Britain anymore. There's a risk of a brain drain, isn't there, really?
1: Absolutely. I mean, fintech founders and, and general tech founders who I speak to have had letters from local authorities in Paris, in Berlin, in Frankfurt saying, hey... Do you want to come over? Have a look around. Why not move here? And you know what? When you've got London rent prices, when you've got the risk of Brexit, um, you know, you can see why that's quite appealing. There, there is only one company at the moment that's firmly said, we're going to move our headquarters. That's TransferWise, which is international money transfers. They've said, we're going to move our European headquarters. Um, But I'm sure there are more companies waiting in the wings, eyeing up, opening little offices and just planning for for 2019.
3: Thanks very much for coming in, Oliver. Before our final item, a quick reminder that if Brexit related gloom is beginning to overwhelm you, you can cheer yourself up by listening into our sibling podcast, Big Mouth, the pop culture talk show for people who love music, books, film and TV as much as we love the idea of appointing Liam Fox as permanent ambassador to Pyongyang. Boom, boom, sorry. Uh, this week, Michael Han is in the chair as the smartest pop culture podcast around looks at Nick Broomfield's Whitney Houston documentary, listens to the latest LP from Critics Crushes the National, and as Sky Arts start a 10-part history of rock and roll, asks, do we care? That's Big Mouth, <laughs> pop culture for smart people on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, guaranteed to be free from fibs about the benefits of economic
0: self-harm. <laughs> Whatever Theresa May says, we on Romaniacs are citizens of the world, so there. We believe the opinions, therefore, of other European citizens regarding Brexit matter as much as our own. Our producer, Andrew Harrison, is in Athens this week, and for the first ever Romaniacs outside broadcast, he's been talking to Gerard Papasimakopoulos, who is a presenter with Sky Radio in Athens and a musician in a band called The Rattler Proxy. Andrew asked him first about the similarities between Britain's Brexit referendum and the early- a Greek one uh,
4: the, it is interesting that there's, there's a, a lot of similarities between the Brexit and the Brexit situation uh, in the sense that it, it's, it was very very near the middle it, it, it was very nearly down the middle uh, as far as the two opinions were concerned like inside the EU or outside the EU and at the same time there was a very clear um, I think rhetoric, um, there was again it was kind of similar there was a lot of talk about immigration and the, 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 the horrors of, of, of illegal immigration um, of, obviously in this in the case of brexit it was overplayed a lot a lot further than it, a lot further than it was in Greece however there was that 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 aspect of it here in Greece as well I think what in the end what happened was it, the, the difference between the two I think is that the referendum in our case which wasn't which wasn't, you know, used upon as, as, a, as a firing mechanism to, yeah. to, to, you know, to, to jettison Greece from the EU. Um, it was used by the series of governments to strengthen their position. Of course, it massively backfired as it, as it turned out because, you know, Alexis Tsipras, being the clever man that he is, this dazzling array of suits, um, <laughs> which are kind of not his size, but anyway, um, um, he 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 thought that he was going to get a um, that the result of the referendum would be for him to say, right, okay, you want to stay in the EU, that gives me the opportunity to go and um, gain a better deal for us. He wasn't, I don't think he was expecting um, so many people to say no, because a lot of people said no, uh, thinking that it meant that we wanted to exit the EU, whereas T-plus turned that around into into a result that he formed in his own head to suit his political purpose. Yes. I think there was there was always the shock because uh, Great Britain were the first country to actually say right we are actually leaving uh, and for, for a lot of people here in Greece um, that's what they wanted to do that 's what they wanted to happen what, what they envisioned that the, the Greek referendum was about was yeah. that if we voted no it means we're leaving so um, I think yeah. again opinion was split yeah
1: um,
4: to the to the percentage of of the, the, of, the, of the referendum, in the sense that the people that voted yes, let's remain in the EU, or yes, let's agree to these austerity measures, wanted Britain to stay in the yeah. EU, and those that voted, who voted no were very happy because they took Great Britain's decision as the first hit to the uh, EU underbelly.
0: Yeah, there is kind of, a, across Europe, there is this belief
4: that, <clears throat> in certain political quarters, that that the whole EU thing is starting to crack and fall apart. What, what, what I think makes it interesting in Greece's case is that, depending on what side you, what political side you were coming from uh, in support of Brexit, it, it, it made for for a very interesting reading in the sense that if if you were coming from the left and supporting yeah. Brexit, you were saying right, and this is the people taking power into their own hands and getting their country back and giving it to the EU. If you were coming from the far right, you were saying, yeah, because they don't want a fucking uh, immig- immigrant scum in their country. And it was a, it was a very different uh, analysis of yeah. the same of the same uh, the same result, which is interesting because that's what's happening in Greece. The, the same results are being interpreted um, in very different ways because they're coming from a very different political direction. Do you think it's changed the way Greek people think of the British? Because we always, we, we, we like to think, the British like to tell ourselves, that we have this reputation for being very calm and very kind of controlled and dependable. And now when it's kind of laughing stock around the world, As people say, what the hell are you doing? I, it's not it's not a reality yet. I think yes. I think that's that, still early. I, I think that's that's the, the main the main point here. It's like, yes, uh, the UK has chosen to go out, but it's not a reality yet. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the the actual the actual reality of of, of the UK being outside the EU. Hasn't arrived yet. Yeah. So, in in, in 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 essence, it's like it's almost like you decide to leave a party, right? But until you leave it and go outside in the driveway and be be, be on your own again and sort of try and walk into your try and walk into your car, you're not actually there yet. You're still inside the yeah. party. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's I, I think that's that's the, the weird thing about the situation we're in now. The UK have taken the first step, but it isn't a very uh, dramatic step. It's taken uh, the opening step into a whole new world, but it hasn't actually en- entered that world yet. So I think it's, it's difficult for people outside of the UK to really pay that much attention beyond the first month post referendum.
0: Gerard Papasimakopoulos, talking there in Athens to our very own Andrew Harrison. <laughs> Why not? As Eric Morcom might have said, how much does a Grecian earn? Not as much as before the financial crisis.
3: And that's just about all for another week. Thanks again to our special guest, Oliver Smith of The Memo. You can read all his stuff at thememo.com. That's The Memo, all as one word. And thanks to Ian and Peter. Don't forget, if you're in London this weekend, you can join the People's March for Europe to demonstrate your rejection of Brexit. It's on Saturday morning, the 9th of September, starting at 11am near the Hilton Hotel at the bottom of Park Lane. You can also join the march at Trafalgar Square around 12.45 or at one thirty pm in Parliament Square, where there'll be a stage and guest speakers. Some of us will be there, maybe even me, and we'll be reporting back on the march in our next episode. That's the People's March for Europe starting at 11am on Saturday morning at the bottom of Park Lane in London. See you there. Before we go, it's Peter's turn to provide a reason to be cheerful.
0: Maybe nothing to this, but I I got a (laughs) a small smidgen of cheer (laughs) from the Sunday Times story that the government is drawing up plans to offer a Brexit. Payment of up to 50 billion pounds. I always also saw euros somewhere, but anyway, a large amount. they <laughs> basically the same exactly, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yes, what's the difference? Euros will be better. Won't yeah, well, it? indeed, yes. <laughs> maybe they should stick to pounds, yes. Now, David Davis instantly rubbished this, but it seems to me that on this, either the government or somebody in the government may be doing something that's not such a bad thing constantly drip feeding this idea that maybe we're ready to make a realistic offer on this and maybe we're getting a little closer to a sum that the eu side would accept and just sort of dripping it in and wearing down the people who the john redwoods of this world who wouldn't pay they say that they wouldn't pay a penny um i'm just hoping that even if it's not true that they're doing it deliberately and sensibly at least it will have this effect that you know we will start to think we do have to make an agreement on this if we want any kind of future relationship with the eu we have to do this and we have to come up with a realistic figure eventually so i'm just hoping that this will help in some way
3: fingers crossed fingers crossed our sign off this week is in dutch from caroline will Tot ziens en blijf strijden. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. In the meantime, you can tweet us with your views at Romaniacs cast.
0: Romaniacs was presented by Ross Taylor, Peter Collins and Ian Dunt. The producers were Andrew Harrison and me, Matt Hall. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.